does it mean to say that an unjust law is no law at all? To what extent does morality provide constraints on what a legal system could even possibly be? To what extent is morality incorporated into the law? Why is it incorporated into the law? What's this connection between law and morality? It feels like we've been trying to answer this question forever. And I know that in some sense, when we look at the fuller heart debate or the heart dworkin debate, it looks like there's some talking past one another. And I know that we've discussed that. If we get back to kind of why we're asking this question to begin with, and we go back to the Fuller's Spelunkian Explorers, and we look at the opinions in that decision, I think you'll find there some real differences in what looks like real judging. Let's not forget that ultimately we're trying to figure out if we're in a legal system, what can we write down as arguments or as orders or even as statutes? What are our obligations to one another? What are our obligations to what came before? What are our obligations toward general principles of morality, if we can identify such things? Now, as you know, Hart thought law could be identified based on social facts alone, and in particular, based on this ultimate rule of recognition, which is a social practice that we either accept or we don't accept. But that that social practice and perhaps even the rules which are identified by that social practice could further point toward morality as providing guidance and could direct judges and other people within the legal system to use general principles of morality to resolve legal questions. We also know that exclusive legal positivists, people like Joseph Raz, think that law can be identified based on social facts alone. And yes, those social facts can tell a judge, hey, consult this principle of morality or that principle of morality, but that's no different than a bit of law telling a judge to apply the law of Ireland or the law of some other jurisdiction. Such a judge is not applying his or her own moral principles. Such a judge is not identifying kind of the moral core of the law. She's identifying law as the law directs, and she's applying it just as if she were applying the law of a foreign jurisdiction. Now, there's the caricature of natural law, and then there's the kind of natural law which goes back even further than Aquinas and which John Finnis is kind of taking up the mantle to teach us about here. The caricature is that natural law refers to some rules which are written in the stars or are otherwise out there and provide ultimate criteria for law. In other words, they are a higher law and that all human law can be measured against these higher criteria. Now, there is a little bit of that, of course, in Aquinas and even in John Finnis. But there's something a little bit deeper here and something maybe more compatible with the core of what you might have identified as positivism. The basic argument here we've already seen in Fuller, and that is there's no point in talking about something called law unless it has some obligating force, unless it is normative, unless it creates a should, unless we should follow it, then, yeah, I guess you could use the label law. But there's really no point in referring to it as obligatory, because it's not. There's no point in really talking about it as law. It's a different sort of thing. So if law is identified with that should, with normativity, then maybe we can think about what sorts of things, what sorts of things we do, what sorts of constraints we apply that can create that obligating force. We saw, of course, Fuller 
talk about a, a moral relationship between the lawmaker and those who live under the laws. For him, this is an inner morality because the constraints that it puts on law arise from the moral obligations of the lawmaker. He or she has obligations to those who will live under that law to make law in the open, not in secret, to make laws that can possibly be complied with and not laws that are impossible, etc. Those eight principles of inner morality of law. Fennis, in contrast, says that we can do more, that we can identify more kind of necessary principles in law by understanding that it's obligating force we're looking for, and therefore we should be very concerned with law's purpose. If we have a non-controversial theory of the good life, of what it means to have a good life for people like us, then we can think about what law's purpose should be in relation to that good life. And here's what Finnis sets up, not in the thing that I had you read, but in another work. He says there are seven basic goods. There's life, which includes health, non-suffering, procreation. There's knowledge. There's play. There are aesthetics. There's friendship. There's what he calls practical reasonableness. And then there's religion. He thinks that these are universal. These are universal goods that are basic to the good life. If that is so, law should be tuned to deliver these basic goods. These seven basic goods, then, are the principles of natural law. They are the things that law must aim to deliver. You might think here about whether you agree with this list of seven basic goods. They are kind of assumed. They are axiomatic and, for Fennis, I think, self-evident, rather than the product of any reasoning or deduction. And maybe in general you might agree with them. Can you think about how controversy could erupt as to the meaning of any particular one? Is it enough that we pursue one form of these goods, even though we can disagree about what the contents of any of these goods should be? Well, we should think about that. For now, let's turn to practical reasonableness, which is this kind of capacity of human beings that is needed in order to pursue all of the other goods. And here, Fennis has another list. Practical reasonableness has nine requirements. Bear with me. These are, I, I think, um, maybe intuitive and, and interesting to think about. So here they go. Number one, practical reason helps us to choose and prioritize the other goods. Secondly, practical reason is concerned with developing a coherent life plan rather than flitting about between different paths. Third, preferences among different values are not arbitrary. Practical reason kind of provides a constraint on that arbitrariness. Fourth, preferences among people are not arbitrary. Fifth, we are open-minded and committed when engaged in practical reason. Sixth, it is concerned with producing actions that should be reasonably efficient in the sense that they generate good consequences. Seventh, practical reason creates or demands respect for every basic value in every act. Okay, so when you're, again, when you're engaged in practical reason, you're thinking about how to act. And that thinking, if it's consistent with practical reason, demands respect for every one of the basic values or basic goods in every act. Eighth, you should be concerned with the advancement of the common good, not just purely self-interested. And ninth, Practical reason involves following an inner conscience. 
Okay. The point here is that having a list of, or, or even just a conception, a substantive conception of what makes a life good and asserting that it is universal is enough for us to say that law, to the extent that it shapes human life or social life, has constraints, or at least has an external check of validity, whereby validity, of course, we mean whether that law should obligate us. If we have such a thing, then I guess we can have a measuring stick that can judge whether law is good or not in some objective and universal sense. And so now we can say that an unjust law shouldn't obligate us, or maybe even doesn't obligate us. In that sense, maybe an unjust law is not law at all. But again, more important for Finnis is not whether you call it law, but whether you should care about it, whether it should be a law, whether you should follow it. And so an unjust law, in the sense that the law utterly fails to deliver the seven basic goods or is at war with them, doesn't provide a moral obligation to follow it. However, and here Fennis notes something a little bit more complicated, not following a law on grounds that it doesn't comply with our list of basic goods might have the effect of harming the common good. And so disobedience may not follow from practical reason. Interesting, huh? Even if we are adherents to a theory of natural law, we might recognize an obligation grounded in practical reason to obey unjust laws. Okay, let's turn to the reading for this week. If you had to sum up Fennis's main point, or at least his main starting point, it would be that asking about law's nature is a why question and not a what question. It's not a question like what's an eclipse or what's a watch, but, but why do those things work like they do? So what is law becomes why is law. What are we doing when we do law becomes why do we do things as we do them. Now, like many of the good readings that we've done in this class, Fennis uses a really good example to get us thinking this way. He's got the child who sees the bully on the playground and is confronted with the practical choice of whether to aid that bully or to help the victim or maybe help the teacher or alert the teacher uh, that there's a need to enforce some playground rules. And Fennis says, first you judge according to your conscience and then choose what to do based on that judgment. And that morality just is the considerations that bear on that kind of decision. So the schoolyard hypo, he says, comes down to understanding first that, well, there's this principle that dispossession requires reasons outside of raw power and desire. Secondly, some people in the group have a special responsibility and authority to adjudicate for the community. Here, it's probably the teacher who needs to enforce the rules. Maybe my responsibility is not to clock the bully, but to go to the teacher and get his or her aid in the situation. But critically, it's the child's moral conclusion about bullying that it violates the idea that we have equal values of well-being. It violates ideas of fairness, the golden rule, and the like. But that, that moral reasoning should lead the child to treat as authoritative the rules that instantiate those moral ideas. But once they're instantiated, I have an obligation to follow them. And that obligation stems from the fact that they solve those, uh, that the rules solve those moral problems. To the extent that law doesn't aim at those kinds of problems, to the extent that the teacher's rules or the rules of the school are completely unconcerned with bullying and maybe even 
uh, enhance it and maybe work against what we think of as the basic goods. Well, then we've got bad law. It's not that you can't call it law, I guess. It's not that an evil law is no law at all, but it's that the law doesn't obligate me anymore because that obligation stems from the pursuit of those basic goods. And again, that's a law that goes beyond just one I could disagree with. It's one that fundamentally doesn't pursue those basic goods. And here, Fennis says that a bad law of that kind is, is sort of like a medicine that's not just somewhat ineffective, but is lethal or completely ineffective. Then could you really say that it is medicine? Or a contract that, although formally valid, commands me to do something illegal and is therefore void and in fact no contract at all? Let's sharpen this point by looking at footnote 9 on page 114. And here, Finnis responds to Raz. Joseph Raz asked why law should be thought to be like argument, medicine, or contracts, rather than like novels or paintings or people, that are still novels or paintings or people, even if they are bad. One answer is that, like argument, medicines, and contracts, law has a focused and normative point to which everything else about it is properly to be regarded as subordinate. Novels and paintings, on the other hand, can have incompatible points, for example, to entertain or arouse, like kitsch or porn, or to tell us truth with artistry. People exist in the natural order as living substances, even if they are not functioning adequately or at all in the orders of logic and thought, deliberation, and or exercises of skill. So you see the idea here? Law is something which Finnis believes has a particular point, right? The point of securing those basic goods. whereas. Other kinds of things, like paintings or, or novels, you could maybe think that, well, they could have different points, and you could want different things out of them, and they could be excellent in one way and not in another. Law is not such a thing for Fennis. In short, he says, a complete and fully realistic theory of law can be, and in all essentials has been worked out from the starting point of the 100% normative question, what should I decide to do, and equivalently, what kind of person should I resolve or allow myself to be? I can think of no interesting project of inquiry left over for a philosophical theory of law with any different starting point. And so our theory of law, according to Finnis, our understanding of what we're doing together, must and be judged by and arises out of that basic question we ask ourselves. What is it that we want to be? The schoolchild who says, what kind, of, what kind of kid on the playground do I want to be? It's with reference to that wanting that we can evaluate the rules of our social order. Now, in the next three sections, Finnis lays out his counter-arguments to some well-known positivists. In, in the first of these, he responds essentially to Brian Leiter, but also to H.L.A. Hart. Finnis argues that Hart's argument, for example, for secondary rules as something more than just fragments of laws. This is, for example, the law of contracts, which refers to a contract as having legal validity, is more than just a little piece of a law, which when combined with a contract makes a full law. Remember this argument? But rather is a secondary rule, which gives basically power to private parties, and that that is a good thing. And Hart calls this a step forward, right? It's, a, it's what allows law to change. It's what allows us to recognize the transition of power from Rex to Rex II, for example. Because Hart argues for secondary rules as a step forward, it seems to be an argument concerned with their desirability, which seems, Fennis says, incompatible with a minimal human goal of mere survival. 
Finnis then wonders, is any part of Hart's theory not ultimately concerned with law's purpose, with making law excellently serve some purpose? Okay, I'm interested in your knowing how Finnis responds to some of these challenges that the positivists have made, the ones that he characterizes here. But I think for this podcast, I want to end on maybe his most important point and something for us to think about. If we start with some formulation of the basic positivist claim, let's see what Finnis has to say about it. So let's take this LP star example. In any legal system, whether a given norm is legally valid, and hence whether it forms part of the law of that system, depends on its sources, not its merits, where its merits could include the merits of its sources. So what, what this is we know already, right? So this is the claim that law depends on identifying sources or compliance with rules and not on a moral evaluation of a given norm to decide whether it is a part of the law. Fennis says, maybe surprisingly, you know, I don't really object to that. He says this, the sense it gives the terms legally valid and law is precisely the sense needed to give sense to the well-known slogan, recalled in the earlier part, and not usually associated with legal positivism, that an unjust law is not a law. But look how he changes that phrase, an unjust law is not a law. He had some brackets. An unjust law, or something legally valid in its making but seriously unjust, is not a law, meaning that it lacks something essential to law's central purpose of determining what I truly should do. That's the essence. In other words, it's a focus on what we should be studying when we study this human social practice of law. We should be studying those things, those elements, that cause us to say that although something is legally valid in how it's made, it complies with some rules, it lacks something that is central to the very purpose of our enterprise. And what is its enterprise? Helping us individually, guiding us individually to what we should do. And that guiding, that helping, must be collective continuation of that individual project of securing the basic goods. Okay, I'll stop there. There's obviously a lot to talk about here, a lot to criticize. Think about it. Do you agree that there is something kind of basic in all of us, something universal to which law must strive and against which we can judge legal systems? Let's talk about that. <laughs> 